How are you all okay? You looking good? So, um, new series today. Yay! Um, now, just a bit of kind of setup, really. Usually, you probably noticed, I tend to preach what we call topically uh, in a series. And the advantage of that is, is it allows us to, to zoom in on a particular topic for around about six weeks. And it enables us to, to take a careful journey, hopefully from problem to solution. And it enables us to, to dig those principles deep enough to really make a difference. Now, another great way of teaching is, is to work through a book of the Bible from start to finish what the posh theologians call expositional preaching. The idea of studying a, a scriptural text verse by verse or, or at least paragraph by paragraph, sometimes even word by word, if that's helpful. And over the 13 years, would you believe that I've been here, I've talked through quite a few New Testament books. There's a group of four, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. I've done three of those. And I'm going to complete the set um, by doing Galatians now. It's going to take us about three months, probably with one or two interludes for entertainment. But, you know, my, my prayer is that this, for you, will be a, it's a fantastic book. Is that it'll be a rich and a helpful and hopefully an inspiring series. I thought I'd start by, uh, by telling you a little bit about how I do my preparation for a series like this, because it's, it's quite hard work, if I'm honest. There's an awful lot to, to dig into. So what I do is about three months out, I go online to that famous bookstore named after a large river in southern America, probably, or the other one named after that old garden, you know, with the trees, that one, that's a good one. Other bookshops do exist. And I choose myself, it's fun, I choose myself three new commentaries. This is great because I really don't have enough biblical commentaries. Uh, and as I do that, there are a few notable authors that I look out for. Disappointingly, sometimes they haven't written commentaries on the books that I'm looking into. Uh, I like to look out for at least one that looks at it perhaps from a slightly more charismatic viewpoint, They're perhaps slightly harder to find. And what I will say is it's really hard to keep it to just three because there's a couple of staples I always use. I always use Wearsby and I always use Barclay as well. So I thought I'd, I'd bless you by showing you a photo of my Galatians pile. Okay, that's my Galatians Bible. There we go. There we go. So what did I, what did I choose this time? I chose, first of all, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, got to have N.T. Wright. He is, I'm sure you all know, is a former Bishop of Durham. You won't hold that against him. Um, then he was Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity St. Andrews and is now a Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. Big wig, big brain, you know, one of those. Perfect. Second one on my list is, is Tim Keller. Tim Keller is fantastic. I was worried that this might be a little intellectual for me. And I've been reading it for months now with my muesli in the morning. We've been getting on fine, me and Tim Keller. Joyce Meyer, 
one of my heroes. I, I knew hers would be straight hitting and practical and challenging. As I said, I always also look at William Barclay. He's, he's a classic, really. Uh, he's really good at the sort of historical context contextual stuff. And then finally, Warren Wearsby, who's a really good commentator. I have his complete works. Uh, he's not terribly con uh, charismatic, but he's very thorough and really insightful. And so I reckoned, you know, with that combination, we'd have a really good and thorough and balanced view of this letter. And that having read all of those, I'm, I'm getting there, that I'd be in a good position to, to present it to you. So I will refer quite, quite frequently to those five writers. I will quote from them. I will unapologetically lose, uh, you lose, use their material. I will build on some of the ideas that really sparked inside of me. But I'm, I'll try to make sure I give them the appropriate credit, which I've done right here at the start. Okay, so let's dive into Galatians chapter 1. Starting verse 1, and it goes like this. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. May God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God, our Father, planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. That's the introduction. Most Pauline letters start with, with a standard form, the form of the day. It starts off, first of all, with the authorship. It is I, Paul, Paul the Apostle. And as we'll see, defending his position as a genuine apostle proves to be a significant factor in the writing of this letter. Then follows that with the, with the addressee, a statement of to whom the letter is intended, normally a group of people or a church or sometimes an individual. And then it's followed by some form of greeting. In this case, verse 3, may God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And then in Galatians, the opening section concludes with a powerful statement of the gospel. And this is hugely significant because you know, one of the key purposes of this letter, as we'll see this morning, is to defend the true and pure gospel of the Lord Jesus. So verse 4 says, Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. And then he goes on to say, verse 6, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news. It's not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Bang! Paul goes straight into it here. No messing around. I am shocked 
says Paul. Ah, there's a tone of surprise, almost anger in his words here. The point being there is a perilous issue that has inspired Paul to write this letter as a matter of great urgency. And here it is, right on the front end. We'll, we'll get to that. But let's ask, who were the Galatians? And what was Paul's relationship with them? There's some scholarly debate, which we won't get into, about who exactly the Galatians were. The word Galatia derives from the word Gaul, which you probably recognize from Latin lessons or French or history or something. Um, it was most likely a, a Roman province somewhere in, in southern Turkey. It included cities like, that you've heard of, like Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby. Not that Derby, Stuart, the other one. The churches were probably found in, in, founded in Paul's first missionary journey, which we read about in Acts 13 and 14. And it was probably the first epistle that Paul wrote, dated at around about 49 AD. This was during the reign of, of Claudius, who was the fourth Roman emperor. Now, most of the people in, in this region worship local pagan gods and goddesses. Some had started to worship the emperor himself, kind of the Roman imperial cult. There was a significant minority of Jews. They had their own synagogue. And then into that, along comes Paul. And Paul is advocating for, for one true God, the creator, the sovereign, the almighty, and is saying that he has now revealed his long-awaited rescue plan. Talking, of course, about a, a Jew named Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who died at the hands of the Romans, but was raised from the dead and is the saviour that we all need. And do you know what? Paul's message had been well-received, and healthy churches had begun to grow all over Galatia. So what was the problem? Verse 8. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preached to you. Here's the problem. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. So, so here's the, the problem in a nutshell. Many had started to turn away from their spiritual father, Paul. And they were now following these, these legalistic teachers called Judaizers who were mixing Old Testament law back in with New Testament grace. And as we'll read, they, they insisted the Gentile believers needed to be circumcised first. And all the men said, oh my. To be, to be considered a true believer, they said, you had to essentially convert to Judaism first. And of course, that contradiction led to a battle for the very souls 
of the gospel. I'm going to read you a, a helpful illustration. This is from N.T. Wright in his book. And he, he says this. Imagine you were in South Africa in the 1970s. A few periscopes go up. Apartheid is at its height. You are embarked on a risky project to build a community center where everybody will be equally welcome, no matter what their color or race. You've designed it. You've laid the foundation in such a way that only the right sort of building can be built. Or so you think. You are called away urgently to another part of the country. A little later, you get a letter. A new group of builders are building on your foundation. Here's a parallel. They've changed the design and are installing two meeting rooms with two front doors, one for whites only and one for blacks only. Some of the local people are mightily relieved. They always thought there was going to be trouble putting everyone together like that. Others, though, asked the builders why the original idea wouldn't do. Oh, said the builders airily. That chap who laid, the who laid the foundation, he had some funny ideas. He didn't really have permission to make that design. He got a bit muddled. We're from the real authorities. And this is how it's got to be. The point is, when Paul came and established these churches, he laid a solid and careful foundation. But now false teachers were trying to seduce them off message. They were trying to discredit the original architect, who was Paul. They were trying to lure them away from the truth and the freedom of the genuine gospel. Back into legalism and ritual, and bondage, what we call religion. And so Paul was writing with urgency, shocked at how quickly this had happened, and to remind them and to return them to the true gospel. And here is the true gospel. Verse 4, Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. Four points about the true gospel. Number one, Christ came to die for our sin and our salvation. Jesus is not just a, a teacher. He's a rescuer. He didn't just tell us what to do. He came and did it himself. What we talk about, what we call substitutionary atonement, Jesus dying in our place. This is the true gospel. And this is what sets Christianity miles apart from all other religions and all other philosophies. And the point is, that is how you are saved. And there is no other way. So true gospel. Number one, Christ came to die for our sin and our salvation. Number two, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So Galatians, which digs into all this, was a, was a pivotal book for, for the great reformers like Martin Luther. And here's the key. 
It's not Jesus and. It's not Jesus or. It's Jesus alone. Christ plus anything else is a different gospel. In fact, it's not even a gospel at all. So in Paul's gospel, salvation from first to last is God's doing. You cannot and you will not be your own saviour. That should lead to tremendous freedom. But as we'll see, we all tend to get sucked back into trying to do it ourselves and to fix it ourselves and to earn it ourselves. Number three, true gospel. The gospel isn't merely a system of salvation or or a new way of being religious. The gospel is the way that God adopts you into his family. So Jesus' death and resurrection means that God, as the Lord of all, is now building himself a new family. A single family, with no divisions, with no separate races. Here's the crux. Not not with Jews at one table and Gentiles at another. Really famous little passage, Galatians 3, verse 26. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Verse 28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you were all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. That was massive. You don't need to become Jewish to be a Christian or or to be a child of God or even to be Abraham's heir. You don't need to add law to earn grace. See, the Judaizers said this, if you want to please God, then you must be circumcised and then dedicate your life to carrying out all the rules and regulations of the law. Because what they argued, they argued that Paul was making religion far too easy just to win cheap favor with the people. Verse 10, obviously, Paul says, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. You know what? The, the, the concept of unearned The concept of undeserved is hard for us as humans. You know, we love a code of conduct. We love a set of rules. We love cause and effect. Grace is much harder. But as the Mandalorians say, this is the way. You've got to watch that. There's a Tim Keller line that I love. He said this, the gospel calls us out of religion as much as it calls us out of irreligion. Think about that one. Number four, true gospel. Freedom is a 
position in which we now stand in Christ is not one that we earn through our good works or our religious compliance or our ceremonial observance. I'm really looking forward to unfolding some of this over the next few weeks. I think it's fair to say I doubt we have a queue of men lining up to be circumcised. Bye, men. But, but I reckon we all find ourselves unwittingly sucked back into subtle forms of legalism and religious compliance. And you know what? In doing so, we miss the power of the freedom that we should have in Christ. The enemy just loves this game. If he can use some means or another to convince you that it's Jesus plus, He can steer you off track, down rabbit holes, and ultimately back into bondage. And one of the great themes of this letter is convincing the Galatian believers that that contrary to the misinformation and the misdirection of those false teachers, true relationship with God comes through faith and trust and grace, and not by rituals and rules ceremony. And all God's people sighed with relief and said, Amen. Amen. So you know what? That's, that, that's the true gospel. And that's what's under attack in Galatia at this time. That's what caused Paul to write, I am shocked. And now in the next section and into the next chapter, Paul begins his defense. Verse 11, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. So a key question right at the beginning is, does Paul qualify as a true apostle? That was under attack. Was he really a, a first-hand eyewitness? Or had he received his gospel second-hand, or third-hand, or fourth-hand? And it was absolutely crucial for Paul to be able to say, like Peter, like James, like John and the rest, Jesus himself told me. And so what Paul is saying here is that I have received my commission directly from God himself. And if that really is the case, the message that I've been given defines orthodoxy and thus, by extension, defines heresy. And it's because of that that Paul could say with authority, verse 8, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. Verse 9, I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcome, let that person be cursed. The word is anathema. As I said, in the rest of chapter 1 and indeed much of chapter 2, Paul gives evidence in defense of his apostleship and hence his, or rather the, true gospel. 
Verse 11, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Four points to, to Paul's argument. Number one, this gospel is not, it's not the product of the evolution of my own thinking, my own journey. What I preach, Paul is saying, is not, is not the culmination of study and research and reflection, but it's God revealed. And actually, as he goes on to say, it's a radical and unplanned turnaround. To demonstrate that, Paul says, says, consider the path that I was on. Verse 13, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion? How I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. See, the reality is Paul was headed in completely the opposite direction until Jesus himself arrested him. You know, the, the great zeal of the early saints, their most persuasive arguments, even their martyrdom had bounced off old Paul. His, his staunch Judaism hadn't, hadn't simply evolved into Christianity. He was so vehemently opposed to it that he was hunting them down. This, this, this was not an evolution. This was an intervention. Number two, two Paul's defense. This gospel is not the result of my response to the teaching of others. When this happened, verse 16, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away to Arabia. Later, I returned to the city of Damascus. So what Paul's saying here is, is that the gospel that he had received directly from Jesus hadn't been perverted or corrupted, should we say, but by what he'd heard from human teachers. In fact, the next verse, verse 18, tells us that, that there were three years between Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus and, and his first trip to visit the apostles in Jerusalem. Three years. You see, in Paul's mind, the gospel that he received had been, 2 Timothy 3.16, had been God-breathed. It was totally and utterly inspired by God. It, it wasn't that he... That he, that he hadn't somehow heard the full story or somehow missed the point. And the implication being that the false teachers would really helpfully fill in all the gaps for him. Verse 18, And three years later I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God that what I am writing to you is not a lie. So the third part of his defense is, so while I, I did not get my gospel directly from the apostles, it does line up with their teaching. Of course, that's very important. And he mentions here by name the two bigwigs. Peter, verse 18, and then James, verse 19, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then verse 22 refers to the wider church across the whole of Judea. Verse 21, after that visit, 
I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia. And still the church in Christ that are in Judea didn't know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. Then comes a, a, a short but important, significant statement. And verse 29 says, and they, verse 24, sorry. And they praised God because of me. The implication here is, is that Peter and James and all those other churches were amongst those praising God because of me. You see, the false teachers were trying to convince the Galatian Christians that Paul's message was incomplete or it was inadequate or it was in some way different to the teaching from gospel headquarters in Jerusalem. And it was crucial that Paul blew those arguments out of the water. And the fourth fourth piece of evidence in his defense, number four, I myself, says Paul, am a wonderful testimony to the validity of the true gospel. Verse 13, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news, the gospel about Jesus to the Gentiles. See, here's the great irony. Paul had been, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, had been the ultimate legalist. He was the great religious rule keeper. He described himself as Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was, in fact, as zealous as anybody for the very matters of the law the Judaizers were trying to pull the Galatian converts back into. But as reflected numerous times in his various epistles, Paul had come to recognize the futility of that to recognize the impossibility of all that, to recognize the reality that salvation simply cannot be earned. Instead, Paul had thrown himself at the mercy of God. He'd given up trying to earn it, and instead he had responded to Jesus' lavish offer of grace. He conceded that righteousness couldn't be couldn't be worked for or achieved, but righteousness was instead received by faith. He could never be saved by the good works of Saul, but his salvation rested in the finished work of Christ. This is the true gospel. This is the gospel that unpicks legalism. This is the gospel that produces true freedom. This is the gospel that leads to genuine transformation and ultimately kingdom fruitfulness. This is the gospel that Paul so rigorously defends in this letter. And this is the gospel that we need to grasp if we want to live in the fullness of all that Christ died to provide. 
That is the journey that we're going to go on for the next couple of months as a church. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come to the front. I'm going to pray, and then we'll set up a response time. Let's pray, Shia. Father God, we thank you so very much for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and as we sung just now, you paid it all. Our sin has been washed away. Though it once was scarlet, now it's white as snow. Lord, we thank you that everything we have, Everything that we are now in Christ, everything we do has to be rooted in the true gospel. And yet, Lord, we understand that grace is a hard concept for us because there's something in it in us that wants rules and laws and wants to earn it and deserve it. And we think we've got to do something to get something. The fact that Jesus did something and that we got everything is mysterious to us. Lord, as we work our way through this, let I pray, Lord, that you would help us to destroy any remnants of legalism. Any thought that our relationship with you is somehow earned by our good works and our effort and our compliance and our ritual, rather than simply by grace and faith in the power of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this letter that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to truly help us to live in the freedom that Christ died to purchase for us. The freedom that comes as a result of that empty tomb and that stone rolled away. Lord, we long to be free. We will have areas in which we're still a little bit bound, a little bit frustrated, a little bit under, Lord, you set us free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Holy Spirit, as we journey through this book, we pray for your wisdom. We pray for your light to shine. We pray for burden-breaking, anointed, yoke-destroying truth to fill our hearts and minds relationship with you might grow and strengthen and deepen and widen as we get to know you and your ways better. Come to it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.